It, it is a great opportunity. I'm thankful for so many people who serve in so many ways to make Gulfside Church happen each weekend. And, and each one of you guys who serve, I want you to know you're such a blessing to this congregation, to the city. Thank you for the way that you invest in the lives of others. We're continuing on into week two of our series, Chase the Lion. This is off of uh, a, a couple passages in 2 Samuel 23, but there is a book that Mark Batterson wrote called Chase the Lion. I highly recommend it. It's an encouraging book. If you pick it up, that's where a lot of this material comes from today. And, and before we get into our passage, I just want to tell you, there, there's a title for this sermon. It's called The Ripple Effect. And you guys have seen this before. Uh, guys, we love throwing large things into the water and watching the splash and watching the ripple effect it be, be, because it just it looks cool. And, and I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of the ripple effect, when you see something get disturbed in the water and those little waves just go out into every direction. Maybe you think of like Jurassic Park when the T-Rex was stepping and the water shakes. Now, I, I think of a couple months back, my, my wife's friend from Indiana, Heather, she was down visiting, and, and this was when we could still swim at the beaches for a while. I'm thankful for the, the water's almost back to normal. That's a good thing, but we're swimming at the beach, and Heather is not someone who's familiar with the ocean. In fact, she's a little bit freaked out. Like, every wave, every ripple, she's like, it's a great white shark. Like, you know, something's about to eat me, and this, this tension and this fear that she has it starts spreading into my wife, Tia. And, and I'm a good husband. I still, I like to flirt with my wife and cause problems when I probably shouldn't. So I do what a good husband does when my wife starts getting worried about something being in the water. I wait till she's not looking. I go underwater. I swim from far enough away that she has no clue that it's going to be me. And I swim up and I find her leg and I grab it with both hands. Now this causes her to almost jump all the way out of the water, which is making me laugh underwater, so I'm trying not to drown now because I'm laughing underwater. And I get up above the water, and I realize something. <laughs> this is not my wife's leg that I'm still holding. <laughs> this is her friend Heather, who is legitimately already terrified of the ocean. <laughs> And she was so certain that something, like, she was done. She was out of the water for the day. And it became the joke of the trip of what I had just done. And it was this funny moment, but it's funny how when we're in the water and we're certain that something, like, every little thing that we see, we know that's going to, it's going to come and get me. Like, because we know there's a cause and reaction. Like, the water doesn't shake unless something's doing it, like, but it's a minnow. It's not, you know, jaws. Like, it's okay. But we understand the cause and effect of the waves. The cause and effect of something that's in the water. And, and today with the ripple effect, I want you to know the ripple effect, it doesn't just happen in water. It actually happens in our lives as well. The choices that we make, they create these waves that affect other people. And good choices, they affect other people in that way. And we, we, we think right away, okay, it's church. They're going to talk about the bad choices. Bad choices, those affect people too. But I think the thing that we often miss is when we choose inaction. When we choose to neither do what's right or what's wrong, and we feel like that doesn't really have a, an effect on people. But I want to tell you, and what we're going to look at today in Scripture and some supporting passages, and just what we also know to be true from experience, when we choose inaction, the ripple effect that that has into other people's lives, it has a tremendous effect on our city and on our culture, on our family, on our schools, on our workplaces. 
Inaction can be as destructive as the wrong choice. And, and we're jumping into a passage in 2 Samuel 23 that, I mean, just even when I read it, I'm like, man, I probably could have picked a more encouraging passage to start with. So I, be, before we dive into the, the, this passage, this is an important passage to understand. It teaches us about the character of God. It teaches us about the history of what was happening in the nation of Israel. But what we're reading is we're jumping into a section where King David, he's writing and he's talking about his mighty men. This is like his elite force unit from the nation of Israel. This was the best of the best. This is like C, SEAL Team 6, like the guys, the manliest of men. And, and he lists through their accomplishments. And I think that there's a couple reasons why he takes, the, takes this section to write about who was around him. David was described as someone who, who is a man after God's own heart. David was passionate, and he did incredible wrong, and he did incredible great deeds. Both of those things were true in his life. But he was surrounded around these men who, who there was something inside of them that even when situations were terrible, they wouldn't back down from what they knew they should do. And they did some crazy stuff. Last week we looked at Beniah, who, who he saw a lion on a snowy day, and he did the exact opposite of what a sane person would do. He didn't turn and run. He actually chased the lion. He pursued the lion until it fell in a pit, and then he killed the lion with a spear. And, and that was kind of almost like the thing that, that got him onto the king's bodyguard. Like, that, that, that was a great thing on his resume. And, and he was a man who did things that, like, w that scare adventurous men. And then this week, we're, we're looking at what's described. There's three guys who stood out from the 37 who were David's best of the best. And the number one guy is who we're looking at today. And, and we're going to hop into this passage. If you have your Bible, you can open to 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 8. We'll project the words on the screen, and you can read along with, with me. As I, you can read along in your head as I read it. This is one of those words, names where it's like you don't want pastor to call on you and ask you to read this verse in front of other people. It's a very Hebrew name. Josheb, Bashabeth, and Atakamanite was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men, whom he killed in one encounter. Now, now this, this verse, it's like, okay, that's really what I need to get me going on a Sunday morning. Uh, a ver verse about war and, and about one guy doing something that just sounds ridiculous and impossible. I mean, he was in a battle where they're saying he killed 800 people. A and if you're ever in a situation where you're in a battle and, and the, the lines are drawn and you see who, who, everyone who's on here and you're like, okay, if, I, if we're going to split this up between us, it looks like I'm probably going to have about 800 this is a good opportunity to turn around and run for most people. Like, I mean, this isn't something that you face into. This is something you look like, okay, I saw an opportunity here. The opportunity wasn't good, and so I left. A tactical retreat. Very smart thing to do. But there's something about his character and, and many of David's mighty warriors in, in this chapter that they would find themselves in a situation where things looked insurmountable. But they knew, that what, they, knew what they should do and whether they were just willing to pay with their life and they weren't willing to run because they knew the stand that they should take, or if they just believed that God was going to give them victory, we don't know what their mindset necessarily, we, we don't know what that was, but we know that they chose not to back down. That they stood and, and fought when other people were running away. In, in different times in this chapter, the, the army would start to retreat and these men would stand tall. And it's one of these moments where it's, it's comparable to some other, other passages when you think back to the story of Moses. 
And, and Moses was married, and you've got to think, he, he told his wife, you know, yeah, I, I killed a man in Egypt, can never go back there. But he's out one day, and he, he comes home and says, hey, honey, um, a burning bush was talking to me today, totally normal, and it told me that I should go back to Egypt and demand that they release all of the Israelite slaves that they're having do their work. So pack your stuff. Um, we're going to do what the burning bush said. I mean, I mean, like that sounds ridiculous to go into the Pharaoh's court and, and make those demands. And there's so many passages throughout scripture. We, we see Shamgar in Judges 3 who fought 600 people with a cattle prod. We see Samson versus the, the thousand. We see the Israelite marching band going around the walls of Jericho. None of these plans make sense. None of these odds add up. All of these situations seemed destined for failure. But there was something inside of them, something in their faith that said, stand where you are. Don't run away. Go after this calling, this mission that God has placed in front of you, and trust him with the results. And I want to tell you that, you know, this is, this is a storyline throughout scripture, God doing the impossible. But it's not something that, that ended in scripture. Because throughout our, our lives, I believe that when you're chasing after God, you're going to see his hand do some things that you cannot explain. You're going to see him bring victory to situations that felt hopeless. And I want to tell you something about impossible odds, and this is the first point from today, is that impossible odds set the stage for God's greatest miracles. There's so many times where there, there's a life and there's a situation where you say, I know exactly where this is heading. I know exactly how this is going to unfold, and it's going to be a mess, just like it's always been a mess. But then God gets his hands in it. I mean, we're familiar, our, our culture today, we're familiar with the, the saying, may the odds ever be in your favor, right? Hunger Games, some people know that. Uh, w- with God, we don't need the odds in our favor. If God is for you, who can be against you is what Romans 8 say. When we know that God has called us to something, the odds are irrelevant because the, the finite is all the same before him who is infinite. We, we know that no matter what it looks like in front of us, that when God's calling us to invest in something, that we can trust him with the results. And I say that, and we know that in our head, but there is a gap between what we know in our head and what we live out in our heart. There's this gap between what we expect to happen in our marriage, in our kid's life, in our workplace, versus what we know God says and what we think he'll actually do in our life. And and so we get into this this motion that I, I, I compare to like a ball rolling down a hill. It's like, okay, I know that I, in my heart, I, I should be in better shape. I, I should eat better. I should exercise. And I know this is something that I should do, but it's like start rolling down the hill, getting into these routines, into these habits. And it's like, I know I should do this, but I'm just going to stick another pizza in the oven. I'm going to sleep in again. I, I know that I should invest in my marriage. My marriage has fallen into a dangerous place, but we don't have time for a date night. We're just going to continue to do what we do. And, and I, I, wish, I wish something could be different. But we just got to keep, we got to keep moving, we got to keep doing it, and we stay in that destructive pattern. I, I wish I could get connected to some other good people. I wish I could get connected to people at church, but, you know, after church, every Sunday, I just run straight to my car, and I don't stop and have soda and hang out and talk with people, and I don't know why I'm lonely. The term repent is a very, like, churchy word, but I want to tell you what it means is to turn around. And I understand that in your life, you might say, there's things that I would like to change, but I don't know how to change it. And it's as simple as just turning. And saying, I've been doing this, and I've been falling into this pattern, but I need to do something different. You can't continue to do what you've always done and expect to get something completely different. 
There's changes that need to be made, but this is the beautiful part. Is that no matter how impossible your situation feels right now, no, no matter how, how much you think, I can't change this, you're not relying on your own strength to make changes. I believe if you're going to find true success, it's going to be because you turn yourself towards God and you say, this is the situation I'm in and I know that I've dug this hole, but God, I'm looking to you to help get me out of it. And historically, this is kind of what I've seen happen in my life and in other people's life, is that God will do something to get your attention and draw you in and say, hey, you need to look towards me for help in this area. And then he'll show you a step to take and you say, okay, I see that step that you'd ask me to take, but what's the next step after it look like? Because if I do that, there's going to be consequences, consequences to my social life, consequences to my marriage, consequences to my workplace, consequences to what I find pleasurable. If I make that change, what's after it? But God says, don't worry about what's after it. Worry about what's right here. Because I'm sure if you were standing on a battle line and there's 800 people in front of you, there would be part of you that says, I don't think I can win this fight. But if God said, don't worry about the rest, worry about what's in front of you right now. Stand where you are, fight where you are. I know that the battle looks too big to be won, but I've called you to stand right here, to fight right here, to deal with this, to chase after this. We don't need to be worried about the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth step. We need to worry about what's right in front of us right now. And and the thing is, God gives us opportunities. I love how Ephesians 5 says this. I'm going to put this up on the screen. This is a great verse for you to look at and, and think about this week. Chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 16 and 17 says, Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. There's a couple pieces in that that I think are worth dialing into. The first is, make the most out of every opportunity. Do you realize that there are opportunities that are placed in front of you? You know, there's 800 people in that battlefield, but it looked more like 800 opportunities for God to show off his power. I understand that there's problems and there's challenges in your life, but those are opportunities for God to, to glorify himself, God to show what he's able to do. I understand the struggles, the difficulties, and the addictions that are present today in our culture. But each one of those is something that you can seize and use to honor God in your life. But we often see those opportunities and we choose inaction. We choose to go a different direction when we know what God is calling us to do. And we have to see those opportunities and we need to seize them in these days that we have. In the second part, it says, don't act thoughtlessly. I am very familiar with acting thoughtlessly because I did survive my teen years and my 20s. Narrowly, but I survived. I mean, one of the times when I was in college, uh, I went to Tacoa Falls College in Northeast Georgia, beautiful area, the, the, these mountains that are around, and we would often go up to a mountain called Mount Curahy. And we were there with a group of friends being dumb 20-year-old kids, and one of my friends, Butch, she went and grabbed a log with a name like Butch. You just kind of tend to do these things. I, I apologize if your name's Butch and you're here today. But this Butch, he grabbed a log, went over to the side, and threw it because, hey, it's cool to throw a log off the side. About one and a half seconds later after throwing it, we hear this, Oh my dear God, from the side of the mountain. There was a mountain climber halfway up the mountain and the log went right by his head. Now in our minds, it's no problem, just throw it off the mountain, it hits the ground, it goes boom, yay fun, boy stuff. We didn't think through how that action would affect anyone else. That on this sunny Georgia day that someone else would have a near-death experience as he's climbing the mountain. 
So much of our days, and I fall into this so often, just thoughtless activities. And it's not just stupid stuff that I'd say is thoughtless, but it's, it's the opportunities that we just don't seize. It's the opportunity to speak life and speak encouragement into someone else. It's a risk that we should be taken, that we just let go by. It's as the book talks about, these lions that we should chase, these 500-pound dreams, these God-sized dreams that seem impossible that we should be going after. But we just let them pass without even thinking. We, we spend so much of our opportunities just, I guess, being thoughtless. But do you know that the Lord wants you to do something? Second half of that verse, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. God has desires for your life. And this, this, might, this might seem just overly plain, but to some people, to actually grasp this, this is, this is kind of outside of their box of who God is. But do you realize that you specifically, that God has a vision, a purpose, a calling, an opportunity that is specific to you in your life? That because of your past experiences, your pains, and your joys, that God is going to put your path across someone else's path who you have an opportunity to help. God has plans for your life specifically. And there's opportunities that only you can seize to impact someone. He has something that he wants you to do that no one else can do. Do you know that? You know, one of the things that I like to do every, and I probably should do it more, but every couple years I like to take my wife out, um, well, we date way more often than that, but we go out specifically to talk about what should the next three to five years look like in our life. Like, sit down and, guys, this is, this is great. It doesn't even matter that she knows you heard it in church. Do it. You'll still get the points. Sit across from her and say, what are your dreams for the next three to five years? What do you feel like God wants us to do? Where should we grow? Where should we invest ourselves? Is this the season where we're pouring ourselves into our kids, into our neighbors, into a little league coaching opportunity, into our workplace? What is it that, that is on our heart for the next three to five years? What are the lions that we should chase? What are the things that if we go after them, it, it's going to point the glory and the attention to God? La last week, we, we, we talked about the fact that God-sized goals, that, that they're beyond our resources, that they're beyond our logic, they're beyond what we're capable to achieve. What are those God-sized dreams and goals for the future of your life have you identified? Because I'm going to tell you, you, you can't finish something that you never start. And if you don't ask of God, you'll never hear that from him. And some of you, when I ask, what is it that you need to accomplish? What is it that you need to chase after in these next three to five years? I say that, and you know. You know immediately. Some of you guys, you're like, I have no idea what I should do in these next three to five years because I've just kind of been so busy staying alive that I've lost sight of accomplishing anything outside of that. And you need to take some time, and you need to invest in this. Single people, it's a lot easier for you to figure out the goals and dreams. You don't have to balance it against someone else. This is something for you, too. You need to understand, what, what is it that God has put on my heart for this next season? And when you know that, you have to begin to move towards it. It's not just about knowing, but it's about taking the step. And this is, this is the second point, that faith is taking the first step before God reveals the next one, the next step. Faith is taking the first step before God reveals 
the next step. You know, I believe that you're one risk away from a totally different reality, one idea from a totally different mentality, one decision from a totally different eternity. It's true that in one moment, in one step, God can just change your perspective on anything. And many of you guys sit here today and you say, you know, I remember when I took that first step with God and I asked him to show up in my life and it just changed the way that I saw the world. And that first step, I'm going to tell you, it's not the last. It should be a leading step of of increasing risks and trust of what God is going to do and is supposed to do in your life. You know, many, many of us, were waiting for God to make a move while God is waiting for us to make that first move that he's already showed us, but we've gotten stuck in not wanting to take it. Uh, I'd parallel this against Matthew 19, 16 through 22, which is the story of the rich young ruler many of you guys are familiar with. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase it for you. There, there's a rich young man who approached Jesus, and he was affluent. He had finances, he had respect, and, and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, keep the commandments. And the young man, he said, I've done that. I've lived a pretty good life. Since I was a young boy, I've followed them. What else must I do? And Jesus, seeing that he wanted to, to be justified, Jesus gave him this invitation. He said, take all that you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. Now, we can contrast this against the calling of the other disciples. Jesus, many times, he invited someone to come and follow him, and they would leave stuff. But there was something that in the rich young ruler that he said, man, I would like to, I, I'd like to hear more of what Jesus has to say. I'd like to go with him and, and, and see what he does. But I've got a good amount of stuff. And that cost is too high. And what the passage says is that he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now look, I don't think that for most of us, God is asking us to sell everything that we own right at this instant and follow him. But I know that if you look at your faith with God, where you are right now, where you stand before him, there should be a question, am I doing things God's way? And if I'm not, man, that's your starting point. You need need to begin your faith walk with God because he's not someone who you make deals with and you tell him the way it's going to be, but he set an order that you place your trust in me and then I begin to work in you and you follow one step at a time. But, But from that step, I will say that there are costs when you choose to follow Christ, there are costs that occur, but this is, this is what should happen internally. I know that if I take this step, that it's going to change the way that my kids have seen me, or my wife has seen me, or my friends have seen me, but I know that even those risks and that cost that I will have to pay, it's worth it because I know who God is, and I know how great his love is, and I know the way that he provides. I know the way that he's faithful. I know the way that he will never leave me. He will never forsake me. And if I take this step, I know that I'm going to be okay, even if I can't see quite where my foot's going to land. Even if I don't know what the next step is going to look like, I know that I can trust him. That's faith. That's saying, God, I will trust you when I don't know what's going to happen when I take this step. You know, when we, last week we watched a video that was a one-year recap of the first year of Gulfside Church. And it's funny because I knew everything was in the vi- that was in the video because I was like the voiceover in it, so I should be pretty familiar with it. But when we were sitting out here watching it, and I heard me say, and I saw the video of us packing our moving truck when we were moving from in- Indiana to Cape Coral, and I said, and we moved to Cape Coral without a place to live or a job. I was like, what was I doing? That was a really bad plan. Like, 
you've got four kids. One of them's a month old. You're moving down with no place to live and not sure where your health insurance is going to be in three weeks, and your wife doesn't have a job yet. Like, what were you, what were you doing? But when I dial back to where I was, like, in that month, I knew without a shadow of a doubt, this is the step that we had to take. But even in my own mind, I'm like, man, that was a really poor plan. I mean, it it feels like standing in front of a battlefield and being like, I've got to deal with 800 people right now. It it feels like the odds are insurmountable that if I really dive into this, if I really commit myself to what the Word of God calls me to do, there is a feeling and there is a sense that I don't know if this will add up. Faith is saying, I trust God more than I trust my understanding of the circumstances. I trust God more than I trust my perception of the odds. I trust his word. I trust his instruction. I trust what he calls me to do. I trust when he places a dream and a vision on my heart that he has placed it there for a reason, that he is able to clearly communicate that I haven't misheard, that I know what I should do. I know what my family should look like. I know what my faith should look like. I know what my interaction with my church should look like. And I'm going to begin to live the way that he's called me to live. And those instructions, they aren't just emotion that is felt, but it is a call to action that is something to be taken. And I I believe that, that we as a church, we're not just called to come here and feel a certain way, but we're called to come here and prepare each other to go out and make a difference in this city, to make a difference in our household. We are called to action. And the dreams that we chase as a church and as individuals, they are so incredibly important. Because your dream is not just your dream. The vision that God puts on your heart, the calling that he puts on your heart, it is not just your calling. And I think this is part of why David writes about this and he says, look at these these crazy, bold, adventurous men who did these things, who stood up in insurmountable situations where they couldn't have won if it wasn't for God. And you begin to understand David and the people that he surrounded himself with. And this is the ripple effect. We understand that when we we make decisions, it affects other people. And it's happened in so many different ways. The the author of this book, Mark Batterson, he talked about when he was 19 years old in in Naperville, Illinois. He was sitting and listening to a sermon, and and the, the man preaching was Sam Farina. And he was preaching on this obsolete passage about Benaiah, this man who chased a lion. And as a 19-year-old, right there, he felt like God spoke to his heart and he had this vision and this calling. He's like, man, if I ever write a book, if I ever get to write a book, I want to write a book about chasing the lions, about chasing these things that seem crazy, but God's called us to do them. And, And he says, you know, the dream that I had on my heart, it wasn't my dream. It was Sam's dream. He preached it. But you know what? It wasn't even Sam's either because it was written in Scripture and given to us by God. All of these dreams that we have, they're not just our dreams. They're God's dreams. And then he takes them and he uses them to create these waves into other people's lives. And you know this because when you go back through your spiritual heritage of people who influenced your life, you can name those couple people who influenced you. Who you looked at their, their life and you said, man, I see what God's doing there and I want that in my own life. You hear their voice and you say, man, I want to understand what they're talking about. And their visions have impacted you. And as you chase that line in your life, as you chase that vision that God has given you, 
It's going to begin to impact other people, some of them that you won't ever even know about. Some of them you will make just the, the smallest of comments, and you won't ever get to see the fruit of what God does with it. Tim Scott was the first African-American that was elected to the House of Representatives in the Senate, the first one in U.S. history. And he wasn't someone who you would have thought ended up there if you looked early into his life. He's from a single mom household. They, They struggled to get by. He jokes about in his life that when he was in eighth grade, he was failing both English and Spanish. And that doesn't make you bilingual. That that makes you bi-ignorant is what he said. And he wasn't doing well and his life wasn't headed anywhere specifically. And an eighth grade teacher pulled him to the side and he says, she changed my life with seven words. You should think about student council. He had never thought about leading. He had never thought about any sort of, you know, elected official position, but with those seven simple words where someone took a student who was failing, not doing well from a rough background, and spoke life into him, and I I doubt that she even knew that she was changing the the trajectory of a young man's life. He began to seek to grow, to to gain leadership skills, and he looked for mentors, and he found a mentor who worked at Chick-fil-A, and and his name was John, and he could, Tim could only afford to buy fries when he went there, and John would buy him the rest of the meal, because John had a vision in his life, too. John wanted to influence one million people with his life. That is a huge God-sized dream, and he began to pour into Tim, and unfortunately, John passed away early in life at the age of 38. And John wrote down as a young man, he, he said, I don't just want to influence a million, I want to influence a billion people to honor him. And Tim is now making choices and decisions and leading in a way that affects 319 million people's lives. But you've got to look back to those ripples, to those waves that were created, those words were, that were spoken, that just even over Chick-fil-A food, the, the coaching that was happening with a young high school boy, that would just seem so meaningless. You wouldn't think that would be something that would create such a huge impact. You wouldn't think that those dreams would pass and grow from person to person. But your dreams, the vision, the calling for your life, it's not just about you. But it's supposed to influence generations in ways that you won't ever understand. And I tell you this, that I believe to be true, and we see this throughout experience and throughout Scripture, is that these dreams and these visions, these God-sized goals, it's not about honoring us. And and in fact, I'll tell you this, this third truth. God will not use you until it's no longer about you. I believe that God wants to do something great through your life, through your influence, through the gifts that he's placed in you. Scripture is clear. Each one of you have a gift. Whether you've discovered it, looked for it, or used it yet, I'm not sure. But I know with certainty that you have a gift to be used in this church and in this city. But God doesn't want us to pursue vision and calling to lift up our own name. And in fact, he won't even enable you to do that because it'll be destructive for you and it'll be destructive for other people. But I believe that when we say, okay, God, this is not about me. This is about you. This is about pushing your name and your message forward in the city. This is about making a difference here. I, I believe Gulfside Church has accomplished some great things in the first year, but it hasn't even scratched the surface of what we're called to do yet in this city. And I believe that it, it, if we ever have a building, and I want to say this just carefully, I, I don't mean to, to talk about of any, any church, but we, if we ever own property, you will never see my name out on the front sign. Because what we accomplish as a church is not about me. 
And it's not about you, but it's about pushing the name of Jesus Christ forward in the city so that people can understand that God loved them so much that he sent his son to die for their sins. That he rose from the grave to give them new life, forgiveness of sins, and an abundant life here on earth. That it's about him and not about me. And so I believe that the accomplishments here, it's not about Paul and Tia Erminger or any one gifted person from our team, but it's about a group of people who've decided we believe that God wants to have an impact on the city, that if there's 180,000 people here, it's a very small prayer for God, let us impact 1% of our city. And so we're chasing after that vision and that calling and that dream as a church, that we're going to impact 1% of this city as a starting point. But not for me, not even for the name of Gulfside Church, but for the name of Jesus Christ. And so we push forward towards that as a church. Band, if you guys will start making your way up on stage, we're going to begin to close this out. We've seen God do amazing and wonderful things. We've seen people make decisions to follow Christ. We've seen God heal people in miraculous ways this year. We've seen people get baptized. We've seen God reunite families that that were in difficult situations. But we've only seen the beginning of what he wants to do. But I believe one of the crucial things is that we have to make it about him. It's not about our excuses. It's not about our schedule. It's not about our face, our popularity. It's not about, you know, (laughs) even getting a Gulfside t-shirt or a coffee mug. It's not about any of those fun things that happen along the way. but it's about us having this great opportunity in front of us. And we don't want to do something thoughtless like just passing it by. But we want to seize it. We want to say, I have the potential to do something, not because I'm gifted, not because there's anything about me, but because I am loved by my Heavenly Father. And He's loved me in a way where I get to carry His message and His truth to other people. And when he gives me the opportunity to speak, I'm going to speak. I won't choose inaction. Because I know that there's this ripple effect. I know that when there's 800 people in front of me and I feel like this is not a winnable fight, but God has called me to fight it, that no matter what the circumstance, I'm going to stand stand where I am called to stand because God has called me to stand here. So church, as you know, the book kind of uses the term, what is the lion that you're going to chase? For this season of your life, do you know what it is? Is it your marriage? Is it your family? Is it your integrity, your workplace? God has a calling for you. He has an opportunity for you. Let's not pass it by. So, practical simple first step this week write down what is my calling for this next year what does God want me to do in this next year and then take that first step not knowing not worrying what the second one will be and I believe as we begin to be a people who embrace the adventure, embrace the risk. We're going to see God do incredible things. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you that you are able, that you are sufficient, that you are strong enough to win any of the battles that are in front of us, no matter how 
we feel, no matter how, how it looks insurmountable to us, but that we can trust you in those situations, and those are the situations where you put your glory on display. And so, Father, as we ask you to put a vision and a calling and a dream on our heart for this next season of life, we pray that you would speak clearly and that you would give us the courage to take that first step so that we can be a people and a church who not just love you in our hearts, not just love you in our emotions and our thoughts, but also love you with our actions. Father, put our faith to work in this city so that families who are hurting and people who feel isolated would experience the love of Christ because of our actions. Work through us today in Jesus' name.